Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. You're listening to RPM Underground on currently occupied WBAI, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Lee Zishi and I use she, her pronouns. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about Medicare for All, um, how New York City DSA members have pressured Congressman Hakeem Jeffries to support Medicare for All, what's happening on a national level, what's happening in the presidential election, um, what's also happening at a state level, and we are joined by Ben Serby and Christy Offenbacher of the New York City DSA Healthcare Working Group to talk about all those things. But first, we have the headlines from The Thorn with Jack Devine. Yo, it's good New York. This is Jack Devine with the headlines from the underground. I've always wanted to say that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, in The Thorn this week, uh, the New York Post uh profiled NYC DSA endorsed candidate Boris Santos, who is running in Assembly District 54. Santos expressed his belief, quote, that we should eradicate private property and go to a model of collective ownership. The Daily News also covered Boris Santos and the three other um, NYC uh, endorsed candidates, highlighting their shared focus on housing issues. In news on our criminal injustice system, the Civilian Complaint Review Board has not investigated the majority of cases in which NYPD officers have killed civilians. Since police killed Eric Garner in 2014, 52 other civilians have been killed by NYPD officers. The CCRB has only investigated 12 of those cases. And despite record low crime rates, the NYPD Surgeons Benevolent Association is conducting a campaign to portray New York City as a crime-infested dystopia, which is interesting for the police to be trying to portray uh, their job as an abject failure. Um, And now an update on the situation here at WBAI. The uh, community-owned and democratically managed radio station that has hosted, among many other programs, including ours, is uh, Democracy Now!, was abruptly folded by a faction at Pacifica National last week. We covered this um, a bit on the show last week, but we just want to update everyone that on Sunday night, uh, the Pacifica National Board of Directors voted to restore WBAI. However... The uh, rogue faction at Pacifica still has control over the operations, so we cannot be broadcasting live. This is, again, really showing how this campaign by this rogue faction is about liquidating democracy at WBAI and transforming the community character of the organization that really gives voice to organizations like ours, DSA, as well as organizations that represent marginalized communities across New York City that are engaged in struggles against the ruling class. They want to shut this down, and they want to really transform BAI and Pacifica as a whole into more of a liberal, nonprofit, 
kind of, you know, recognize that there are problems in society, but not be confrontational and antagonistic on how to really deal with the ruling class's power structures. So the fight to save WBAI continues. Earlier today, there was a press conference at City Hall where a bunch of coalition members um, and community organizations, labor unions, and elected officials all condemned the actions of the rogue faction at Pacifica and showed solidarity with BAI and, and most importantly, with the workers here who were abruptly fired by Pacifica, the rogue faction at Pacifica National. And we stand in solidarity with the workers, the producers of all the shows and programs here. And this is a long fight for community media, independent media, and working class institutions. And uh, if you want to hear more about that fight, you can reach out to Red Wave WBAI. Uh, now back to Lee. Yeah, we also have a really great episode if you want to listen to Media and Late Capitalism, where we talk about all of these problems. And yes, shout out to W. BAI's workers. And um, thank you so much, Jack, for that update. Uh, The Thorn is brought to you by the New York City DSA Electoral Working Group. um, And you can subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So today we are talking about Medicare for All. Um, We are joined by Ben and Christy of the New York City DSA Healthcare Working Group. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. Um, ben, let's start with you. I'd like to kind of start off by introducing our guests. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you got involved in New York City DSA and what you, you know, what, uh, how did you end up working with the healthcare working group? Yeah, sure. Um, so I joined uh, New York City DSA shortly after um, <laughs> some important political events in late 2016, like many people. And, um, you know, I, I have always felt that... Um, single-payer healthcare, Medicare for All, was a kind of cornerstone of what a uh, socialist vision, um, or at least a socialist transformation, would look like in this country. Um, And uh, it was voted on as a priority campaign by uh, DSA members. So I really wanted to get involved in the fight for Medicare for All. Um, I kind of found my way into the the, um, healthcare working group in New York City DSA a little late, though. And more recently, I've been really involved um, in the Jeffries pressure campaign, which we're going to talk about. Um, But it's an issue that's near and dear to me as someone with a chronic illness. Um, So um, that's something I always talk about with people when I'm, you know, organizing around it. And what about you, Christy? How did you get involved in DSA and particularly, you know, this working group? Sure. Uh, Well, I first got involved in DSA in uh, the wake of Trump's election, maybe a little bit before it. Um, And like Ben, I got involved in the Medicare for All campaign in particular for both political and personal reasons. Um, I was interested in 2017 and the discussion around the National DSA Convention of reasons why people were pushing this forward as kind of the major first uh, program that socialists could push for and win in the United States. Um, And in talking with people that were getting the national campaign going, I volunteered as one of the first regional organizers with the national campaign. I was initially responsible for helping chapters on the east, all of the East Coast coordinate um, and get started their own chapter-based campaign work. I'm also a social worker. I work at a public mental health clinic in Brooklyn, and I see every day the um, treacherous qualities of our current healthcare system um, and just how its brokenness leads to broken lives um, and continues to pull people away from their families and their friends um, and ultimately uh, away from kind of a, an ability to participate in a broader political movement um, because they're so trapped in their own um, 
uh, personal troubles. You're listening to RPM Underground on listener-sponsored WBI. Not currently broadcasting, but don't worry, we will take it back. That's what we do. <laughs> um, so we are talking about Medicare for All today. Um, and so this week um, on Thursday, uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who is the fourth-ranking Democrat um, within the, um, the House, um, had this town hall. Um, so... Um, Let's, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened there, but before we get into that, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the healthcare working group. Um, so can you explain a little bit about the healthcare working group and some of the campaigns that you're working on? Yeah, um, so I can say that, you know, um, for the last couple of months, um, I think the biggest priority really has been our uh, house pressure campaign. Um, so... Right now in the House, there's uh, a bill called H.R. 1384, which is the Medicare for All Act of 2019. It was sponsored by Premila Jayapal, uh, who's a congresswoman in Washington state. Um, and, you know, it had about 100 or so co-sponsors when we started our pressure campaign, which is a <coughs> nationwide DSA campaign. Um, and we've managed to successfully, using, you know, a range of tactics, um, flip several Congress people, including um, Lloyd Doggett, who's a congressman from Texas, um, uh, David Price, who's a congressman in North Carolina. And then here, you know, where we were really focused in New York City was on Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who you just mentioned, Lee, uh, just a second ago. Um, and, you know, what that work consisted of leading up to this town hall, uh, which we're going to say more about in a minute, um, you know, was really just getting out there and talking to as many people in Hakeem Jeffries's district as possible. So this summer, we really took advantage of the nice weather, <laughs> and we went out to block parties every Saturday. Um, we had kind of uh, roving delegations that would go and meet people where they're at, at their block, and talk to them and just ask them about their experiences with the healthcare system, if they've heard about Medicare for All, um, what they think about it, and... Um, you know, uh, getting to know them also meant, you know, learning whether they're a member of a union, whether they're a member of a block association, what community organizations maybe they belong to, and really just expanding our network of contacts and, and really trying to build a grassroots movement for healthcare justice here in Brooklyn. And I think we've seen the fruits of that. Um, we, we know far more people than we did when we started. And uh, we're really getting to know the kind of structure of, um, of this district and, and how power kind of moves within it. Um, maybe, Christy, you want to add to that? No, that was great. <laughs> and and very recently, Hakeem Jeffries has come out in support for Medicare yes. for All, but he has also supported some other measures that are similar or not very similar, um, including Medicare X. Can you um, maybe explain a little bit, you know, specifically what is the version of Medicare for All that mm -hmm. DSA supports and how that differs from some other proposals on the table? Sure. Um, so Medicare, or I'm sorry, DSA has built our Medicare for All advocacy around five really simple principles. Um, these uh, principles are represented in the two Medicare for All bills in Congress. That's, as Ben said, Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All Act of 2019, which is H.R. 1384, and then Bernie Sanders' bill in um, the Senate, S. 1129. Um, those five principles are that this um, a truly robust Medicare for All program would need to be a single health program offering comprehensive coverage that is free at 
at the point of service. It's universal coverage uh, for all United States residents, non-citizens included, and it has to include a jobs uh, initiative and severance for those who will be affected by the transition to government-run health care. Um, so with all of that said, um, uh, this is very different from a slew of other plans that are being kind of grouped under the name of public option plans. Medicare X is one of these, and it's one of the more nefarious of, of them in that uh, it completely maintains the private insurance industry um, while seeming to, to uh, increase consumers' choice uh, by offering a, a public plan. Um, and so it's kind of operating under this popular, this wave of popularity of uh, um, increasingly popular uh, public options. Um, people are kind of uh, beginning to feel more uh, positively about the idea of public option or like a public plan. Um, but this really doesn't eliminate the private insurance industry, which is to, completely essential to changing the healthcare landscape as we know it. And so um, on Thursday, um, Congressman Jeffries had this town hall. I think it was specifically titled about like the rising cost of drugs and prescriptions and things like that. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about DSA's organizing around that and what happened on Thursday? Sure. Um, so as you said, last month, Hakeem Jeffries co-sponsored H.R. 1384. This came as a bit of a surprise to us. I think um, in all of the pressure campaigns across the country, one of the most powerful things here is that uh, pressuring our Congress people gives us an opportunity or a pretext for talking to our neighbors, our friends, and our family about um, the movement for Medicare for All and building that movement, whether or not we expect our Congress people to actually oblige. Um, in this case, uh, I think many political strategists and analysts looked at the situation, said Hakeem Jeffries is the fourth-ranking Democrat uh, in in the House. I'm sorry, uh, in Congress, you're not you're not going to flip him, but you know it's worth doing. It's worth doing because you're going to talk to so many people. You're going to get people excited about um, this program, and you're also going to point out the hypocrisy of politicians who claim to represent their interests and then don't support something which so clearly is in their interest. Um, so when he co-sponsored, it was a bit surprising, I must say, um, and I think uh, it speaks. Um, to to the pressure that we raised, we held a, a very large town hall um, on, I believe, August 8th. Uh, about 200, almost 200 people came out. It was a coalition of a whole lot of groups around New York City that worked together, um, including the Campaign for New York Health, um, Heal New York, um, PNHP New York Center Metro, for Center for Popular Democracy, um, DSA, of course, um, and National Nurses United. National Nurses United. Mm -hmm. um, and then a, a, a few of our local coalition partners, um, like the Sickle Cell Thalassemia Patients Network, 500 Men Making a Difference. I think, um, who am I forgetting? Uh, Fatherhood. Brooklyn Fatherhood. And, um, oh gosh, there's, there's more, and I'm uh, not doing them justice. But... Um, I, I think really it was a testimony to, to how much he saw. It's not just the same old, it's not the lifers out there who are going to fight for single-payer um, 
regardless of the political situation, it's really people who are newly politicized who are coming out um, and are excited about this program. So he not only co-sponsored, um, he also immediately turned around and announced he's going to have this healthcare town hall, which mm. just like looks so good on him. He's also worked a lot um, on this uh, HR3, this bill uh, to put a ceiling on pharmaceutical prices. And so he can come out looking really good um, and saying, like, I'm going to I'm going to fight uh, to to keep down pharmaceutical prices that are so egregious and are uh, bringing such trouble to the daily lives of my constituents. Um, but we wanted to, to go there and to really change the conversation to push him to center Medicare for all um, and to ask him in some sense why this town hall isn't centering Medicare for all when that's clearly the thing that's drawing his constituents out in droves to to other to community uh, sponsored town halls. Why isn't he doing that? So um, kind of one perhaps interesting uh, aspect of the town hall last Thursday is that um, we got there, DSA got there, and um, I mean, our major goals for the event were just to talk to everyone we saw there about the campaign for, for Medicare for All, um, but then also to, as publicly as possible, ask um, Hakeem Jeffries to uh, host a town hall that would be just on Medicare for All, the issue that his constituents seem most excited about. Um, so we were planning uh, to do this in the question and answer set. Uh, section of the event, um, and we, I think some of our organizers there had asked um, the organizers of the town hall, you know, how are you going to do the question and answer session? And they told us, we're going to pass around the mic. Um, so we said, great, <laughs> we're ready. And um, we had uh, Farah Soufran there who was going to ask the question and also deliver the petitions that we've collected all summer. Um, and in, so to say, these are the petitions uh, urging you to not only co-sponsor HR 1384, but also to become a vocal public advocate for single payer and nothing less. And um, so she was prepared to do that. And then at the last moment, um, they changed the format. And so instead of passing around the mic and allowing um, the whole audience to hear the voices of of uh, the his constituents asking their questions, um, they passed around p uh, postcards, uh, had us write questions on them, um, handed them in, and then they handpicked the questions that they wanted to be asked, and and then they read them too. They didn't call on the audience members to ask their questions, um, so it really uh, kind of um, silenced uh, this initiative um, of ours. We did, however, uh, ask immediately to. Um, whether we could have some audience with him after the event, and they obliged. Uh, we went up to him while he was still on the stage um, and handed over the petitions and asked for both a meeting with his office and a, and a healthcare town hall that would be just on Medicare for All. Um, and we were given a kind of soft yes and pointed toward uh, Jeffrey's chief of staff to schedule this. And can you talk a little bit more? You talked about, um, you know, going to block parties and block associations, all this stuff to reach out to people. Can you talk a little bit more about that campaign to pressure Hakeem Jeffries and like what what kind of conversations were you having with his constituents around Medicare for all? What was their response to this canvassing and these outreach efforts? Yeah, I would say um, <laughs> it's always a little bit nerve wracking to approach people who are complete strangers who you don't know the first thing about. It's not even like canvassing for a political candidate where maybe you have some um, voter data, um, you know, I don't know, um, their age and their name, that you're just really approaching a complete stranger um, and often where they live or um, usually they were like with friends. But actually that was an advantage, um, you know, first, 
first of all, I'd say, you know, the beginning of the conversation often uh, opened with a, a bit of a misunderstanding. Often people thought you were trying to kind of give them Medicare or, or Medicaid or some kind of insurance. And we had to clarify, right, this is, no, this is a political campaign. Um, there's a bill in Congress and we're, we're you know, we're talking to people about it because, um, you know, Representative Jeffries hasn't yet signed on as a co-sponsor of it. Most people had a favorable impression of Medicare for all. The phrase Medicare for all tended to ring a bell for people that was, you know, positive. Um, and I'd say, um, by and large, um, folks really seem to um, believe in Representative Jeffries or want, you know, to, to feel like, uh, he would do the right thing. And so there was a kind of sense of disappointment that you would constantly get from people when they would learn that, he, you know, he has not yet signed on to this. Um, and, you know, we would get people very excited basically by pointing out exactly like Christie was saying, how highly ranked he is in Congress. Um, he's one of the most important, you know, Democrats in Congress. Um, so his leadership on this would mean a whole lot. And that really motivated people to give his office a call. We gave them call scripts. Um you know, and, and, you know, I also would constantly run into people who actually had met the congressman or knew him and would say, oh, I'm going to text him right now and give him a piece of my mind. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, how how people responded um, just on a more personal level, um, you know, I would often lead with talking about how how healthcare affects me, um, health healthcare policy, that is, um, you know just by making it really concrete in terms of your ability to switch jobs or um, your fear of losing your job or if you're trapped in a marriage that maybe you don't want to be in. Um, you know, just there, there are all kinds of dependencies that are built into uh, how healthcare, how health insurance works in our society. And it's especially acutely felt if you have a chronic illness. I mean, anyone can get sick, anyone can get injured, but some people are perpetually chronically dependent on the healthcare system in a way that makes this um, like a very everyday, you know, real life or death issue. And, uh, you know, I found that when people, when it was framed that way, people, you know, really responded to it and, and everyone could relate to it on some level. Um, you know, one other thing that, that was often difficult was people who have private health insurance uh, through their employer or, you know, they have a good union sponsored health plan they would often wonder, um, and I can understand this, you know, whether their their situation would get worse under Medicare for all, and that's just a political conversation. I mean, you just have to combat the ignorance um, that that is out there, and that's in part, you know, aided and abetted by the corporate media, and that's why we do this. We go out and we talk to people and actually talk about the reality of what's in the bill and what Medicare for All would do and why it is that um, actually a lot of people in the labor movement support it. Um, uh, just one conversation that I'm thinking of that I remember on my first canvas ever, which was actually out in Bay Ridge. This was um, for the New York Health Act um, when we were pressuring um, uh, Andrew uh, Gunardis. Yeah. I always confuse him with Michael Gennaris. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I remember talking to someone and she was, uh, she was a New York City public school teacher. And she said, you know, I have great health insurance. I'm in the UFT. And I was like, I'm so glad that you do. But, you know, this isn't going to make your health insurance worse. It's actually still going to be better, believe it or not. And part of what I said to persuade her was, you know, 
she it turned out she had a son you know who is uninsured right and so it's like you know this is something that would be a, a floor right for everybody um so think about it that way and that really she she thought about that she was like you know this is it is a little unfair at the very least that you know this is something that i can you know uh, you know, from my position, feel like I have and take for granted, maybe, um, whereas it's not available to everybody else. Mm. Um, there's obviously, you know, more to say about that. But, you know, every conversation is different. And uh, you learn a lot just from doing this from one day to the next. Mm-hmm. I would just add, yeah, I think I've done a lot of canvassing for a lot of different campaigns. I think the Medicare for All canvassing is some of the easiest canvassing I've ever done. Everyone has a healthcare horror story or knows someone who has one. Um, and to those, I think one of the more powerful talking points that I came upon for people who feel comfortable in their current situation has to do with, um, well, just very materially replacing high and unpredictable costs from premiums, copays, and deductibles with very low and stable taxes. So um, it's kind of hard to do the kitchen table math in the abstract, but most like uh, families that pay around ten to twelve thousand dollars a year would, or like, but can't depend on paying exactly that much would end up paying around uh, between seven and nine hundred dollars in taxes um, for reliable um, dependable and high quality care um, so it's it's a lot about connecting people's kind of personal experiences with the healthcare system to the broader political context that prevents um, what is actually a much more rational and efficient system from being enacted and what comes next in this campaign to around that's centered around Hakeem Jeffries Sure. So with Hakeem and or with Hakeem Jeffries in particular, I think um, you know it's not enough for him to just support Medicare for all. We really do need to have Congress people who are becoming vocal public advocates for single payer and nothing less than single payer. Uh, so we're going to be uh, asking him, pressuring him to essentially renounce his support. Uh, for other plans and to host as many public uh, opportunities to educate the public about exactly what is single payer and why is it the only solution to our health care crisis. Yeah, and I kind of want to switch now a little bit to look at this national picture and what's happening on the national level. Can you talk a little bit about the history of organizing for Medicare for All and how does New York City DSA and maybe even DSA at large kind of fit into the organizing that's happening on the national level? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing, you know, that I can say is that, you know, the architects of Medicare, just plain Medicare, um, back in the 1960s envisioned it being phased in, you know, down, you know, from one age group to the next to eventually being Medicare for all. This was not like a fringe position, even, you know, within the Democratic Party. Senator Ted Kennedy was a leading sort of sponsor of this for, you know, one Senate session after another um, until his death. Um, you know, in terms of where, where we're at right now, I think there's no question that Bernie Sanders' presidential run in 2016 really did a lot to put Medicare for All back on the political map, like right in the center. Um, we've seen how much um, momentum is behind Medicare for All as a demand, um, you know, in polling, right? Uh, the, the sort of favorability just, you know, went right up over the last couple of years. And partly... That has to do, of course, with the implosion of the Affordable Care Act, um, and which just clearly is inadequate um, to even achieve the limited goal of universal coverage, let alone address the problem of underinsurance. Um, so, 
you know, I think it's just it's we're at a moment where it's clear that there's no solution, uh, you know, short of Medicare for all. Um, and I think more and more people are recognizing that. Um, you know, as I said before, when we started our pressure campaign, we had about 100 co-sponsors uh, for Jayapal's bill in the mm-hmm. House, H.R. 1384. And we're now up to 119, mm-hmm. um, which is more than half of the House Democratic Caucus. That's right. um, so more than half of the House Democrats now are on record, you know, sponsoring this bill. Um, you know, we also had hearings on the bill for the first time in Congress uh, in the last legislative session uh, in three different committees, including the House Ways and Means Committee, which is really the kind of, I think, like the, you know, the purse strings, you know, caucus uh, committee that mm-hmm. is uh, in the House. So it's very, very important that that happened. Um, it means that we're getting closer. But, you know, I think as Jeffries is, uh, you know, sort of hemming and hawing um, sort of indicates, um, you know, the closer this gets to being a politically viable reality in terms of how popular it is, how strong the demand for it is among constituents, right? I think you're going to see a lot of attempts to muddy the waters on the question with things like Medicare X, these different mm-hmm. public option plans mm-hmm. that Christy was talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and you're seeing that in the presidential race as well. Yes, certainly. I think... Um, as uh, Medicare for All becomes more popular, as it takes center stage in the presidential election, um, we're seeing newly mobilized opposition forces. So um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. Uh, that group of it's mostly um, health insurance companies. The pharmac- Partnership for yes. Health Care for America or yes, something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They always um, sound so nice. It's <laughs> so nice. Yeah. Uh, it's not, um, but they. Um, basically put a lot of money in certain states between the presidential debates, um, uh, sp- just uh, smudging the name of Medicare for All, painting it as something uh, as a negative program that takes away uh, your health insurance and your health care. Um, so we're, we're really seeing that as an indication of the increasing viability of passing Medicare for All. Um, so the only thing that uh, we're going to be able to to do to counter that increasing mobilized opposition is going to be to change our strategy and our tactics a little bit. I think historically the strategy strategies around um, winning single payer for the last few decades at least in a period of relative isolation and weakness of the left have been based in lobbying, have been based in kind of media-based approaches and getting the word out through um you know, direct actions, uh, one-off direct actions. But what we're going to need to see is increasingly a movement-based strategy, one which um, recognizes, again, that the, it's not going to be the handful of um, lifelong single-payer advocates that win this. It's going to be when everyday people are organized enough to demand this. Um, so really, in the next couple of years, our, our goal is still to get this um, to the floor of the House, to get H.R. 1384 to the floor of the House. It's quite likely we think that it will uh, in the next legislative session in 2020. Um, But it's going to rely on national coalition partners increasingly getting behind um, this sort of knock-every-door approach, the talk to as many people as possible, tap into existing networks of of communication and power so that we're reaching people in a deep way as quickly um, and as effectively as possible. We need to clarify um, what Medicare for All is, what the everyday person's stake is in its passage. 
And you brought up um, the presidential election, and obviously that Bernie Sanders supported this in 2016. Um, clearly, he's supporting it this time around. Who else that's running for president supports Medicare for all right now? Or Sure. It's a muddy question. I mean, so Joe Biden is the only leading Democrat Democratic candidate who is outright opposed to Medicare for all right now. Um, he is, uh, I think... Um, the one who's often posing the question in these negative terms, like who wants your healthcare taken away? Um, but then you have several candidates, um, uh, Cory Booker, Kristen Gillibrand, Tulsi Gabbard, who um, have previously supported Medicare for all, but have kind of balked when asked about the elimination of private health insurance on in the presidential debates. Um, there were only four candidates who kind of said yes, um, clearly when asked whether they would uh, fight for the abolition, or not fight for, whether they would choose to abolish private health insurance in favor of a government-run program. Those were um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Bill de Blasio, and Kamala Harris. Yeah, although we should say that yeah. Kamala Harris yeah. later took she walked back. back. She, exactly. she renounced it. Um, and then even though she's a co-sponsor of Sanders' mm -hmm. bill in the Senate, which is the companion bill, we should say, to the Jayapal bill we've been talking about in the House, um, she has she said at a fundraiser in the Hamptons that um, mm -hmm. she had quote had had issues I believe was the phrase with Sanders's bill, um, which you know I, it's a little hard to understand why she co-sponsored it <laughs> in the Senate then, right. um, and it was a little vague. Um, it, you know, in terms of Elizabeth Warren, she's um, she's really defended um, the idea of single payer in the debates against. Um, what someone uh, I love this called the Dad Caucus, uh, which included you know Hickenlooper and you know some of these other candidates who were all kind of questioning uh, the you know Medicare for all as a policy idea from a kind of like dollars and cents perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, Warren, um, you know, her website has you know very little uh, detail on what single payer would look like. Um, you know, what her plan is. I mean, especially for someone who talks so much about her plans, it's a little disconcerting and actually um, worrying that um, the language being used, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but there's a very good piece you can look at by Tim Higginbotham and Jacobin about this. Um, you know, the language that she's using to describe Medicare for All really leaves open the door for public option. Yes. Um, you know, anything ranging from Medicare X to Medicare for America, which is what Beto O'Rourke is behind. You know, these different um, insurance industry-sponsored plans, basically. Um, so it's, it's, I you know, the jury is out, frankly. I mean, I don't think we can necessarily say that she's for single-payer and nothing less. Um, I think Bernie Sanders, and someone said that Andrew Yang, although I, I have no idea, honestly, what his policies are we don't need to talk about that but but definitely bernie sanders is the only front runner candidate who is absolutely 100 percent down the line for single payer and nothing less and that's a big part i think of why we in dsa are so strongly behind him absolutely and yeah i mean i think when it comes to presidential elections like our media somehow always gets even worse during these times you know like what's focused on and what's what do not you mean? <laughs> uh you know um but so like how has medicare for all been kind of covered during the presidential election and what do you think's kind of missing from the conversation or you've kind of talked about some of these like distractions or like improper framing like what what is not being talked about that you wish was being talked about you know when we have these big stages of where our country is going to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing about the the discourse that's 
really, uh, you know, a problem is it's framed in a kind of consumer-oriented way. Like, mm -hmm. my choice is going to be limited, um, uh, you know, this thing that I have access to right now is going to be taken away by the government, which, you know, if you actually go out and talk to people about health care, health insurance, they don't feel, most of them, you know, like they have choice, right? I mean, you know, I certainly don't feel that way a lot of the time. And right now I'm lucky to have pretty decent health insurance, um, knock on wood. Um, but, you know, that's that's just that's just not the reality for most people. Um, you know, another thing that, you know, I would say is that most doctors are in favor of Medicare for all at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, actually we mentioned the partnership for America's healthcare future. That's what it's called. That's it. Um, which the, um, American medical association, which is historically the major, um, you know, op you know, opponent of, um, you know, public insurance going back 100 years to the progressive era, actually backed out of that coalition under pressure from uh, PNHP, uh, Physicians mm -hmm. for National Health Program. Right. So, you know, doctors are on board, um, at least they're kind of split, but at least it's not, you don't have unanimous opposition from healthcare professionals. And nurses are the leaders in this labor, you know, sponsored movement um, to to back single-payer legislation. The National Nurses Union mm -hmm. in New York, we've got NISNA on board with the New York Health Act in California, where they have a very um, similar state-level single-payer bill. The California Nurses Association is like a leading component of that coalition. So I think that really changes the nature of it, um, it at least the, how you can present this as a question um, you know, its viability, um, who supports it. You know, it's not just a bunch of, you know, healthcare wonks who, uh, you know, read Jacobin or something. Like, it's a very broad base of people, including people who work in healthcare, who are very strongly in favor. And I think that really actually changes people's perceptions. Yeah. I To add to the viability point, which is one that I wanted to make, um, I think that it's uh, it's wildly popular already. It's also um, been studied and studied and studied and um, kind of combed through for the past 20 years. I think John Conyers, um, H.R. 676 was introduced, I believe, in 2001. And every year, economists and healthcare professionals have looked it over, have made improvements to it. And really, when uh, uh, Representative Jayapal presented this this year, it, it was declared across um, both the, the kind of like these economic experts and healthcare um, professionals, a gold standard of single-payer healthcare, um, one that is designed to be implementable um, if it's actually held to, if it's not cut down um, in X, Y, Z number of ways by those who want to see it fail. Um, there's also, I think, um, in terms of its viability, there was another point uh, that's gone now. Uh, but they're, I think, uh, missing from the conversation in addition to um, the fact that it is a, it is really a viable program, um, is the amount of underinsurance and uninsured numbers of Americans. So um, when it's framed as something which will take away private insurance or it will even increase wait times, uh, it, it often fails to get uh, 
the full picture, which is that currently we have the market determining um, the wait times. A lot of people never go to the doctor because they don't have health insurance or they're afraid of the bills that they'll face once they get there. Um, I think the current statistics are we have 87 million people um, in the country who are underinsured and 30 million who are simply uninsured. Um, so the massive um, uh, numbers of people who are uninsured and under, underinsured is like often left out of the conversation. There's also a lot of misinformation when it comes to just what Medicare for All is. Um, my mom, who mostly watches Fox News, um, my whole family, which is conservative, Republican, um, ends up now calling me or texting me to be to ask clarifying questions when they hear this information. So I know, um, uh, I think last week somebody texted me and said, hey, you don't get to choose your doctor under Medicare for All? Like, what's that about? Um, because they're largely on board for Medicare for All now, even though they're conservative and, re and Republican. Um, they want to see it passed, but they get concerned when they see things like that. So they're, they're being fed lies about what it actually is. Um, and then finally, the question around labor and the lack of labor support for, for single payer is kind of a part of the discourse that is quite troubling. I think um, it's often framed that labor unions uh, or that organized labor doesn't stand to benefit from single payer. Um, this is a fraught issue within the organized la within organized labor, um, but there tends to be a split between rank and file members of unions and then union leadership on this question. It seems, um, and there are national organizations devoted to clarifying this question. The labor campaign for single payer is the, is the main one that I know of, um, but basically, uh, Organized labor stands to to gain so much from the passage of single payer in that once you take health care off the bargaining table, you can then put back onto the bargaining table things like wages or work conditions, mm -hmm. um, things that really unions exist to fight for. Um, they should never have been forced to um, to defend uh, good health care, um, which is something that the creation of um, the private insurance industry really weak actually weakened the American labor movement. Yes, those are all really important points. But, uh, you know, one other thing, though, that I would want to see, you know, really incorporated into the conversation that's missing, and this is related to Jeffrey's town hall, um, you know, that we were organizing around um, last week, is there's so much public <laughs> ire directed at the drug companies for very good reasons. And I don't think the dots are connected enough in public, you know, in, in, in the media, really, in public discourse, um, you know, between the drug companies and, you know, the insurers. And, you know, what Medicare for All would do is um, empower the federal government to bargain down drug prices. It would That's destroy, it. really, the drug company's <laughs> model, uh, business model, which, um, you know, right now the drug companies, it, it's like the among the most profitable sectors of the U.S. economy, they make, um, you know, on average, more than three times in profits, um, you know, what most Fortune 500 companies make. You know, it's, it's just an extremely profitable industry with a very, you know, low favorability, you know, in, in opinion polls, um, you know, and obviously with the opioid crisis, it's, you know, it's just a very, they're, they're really in PR crisis mode at this point. And I just, I think if people understood that also about um, what Medicare for All could do to actually, um, you know, puncture their their unrivaled power um, mm. at this point. That would really, I think, be an additional boost. Um, yeah. And so what comes next on the national level besides this campaign to pressure Congressman Hakeem Jeffries? I mean, on the national level, 
I think a, a large part of what DSA is looking at is uh, the campaign for Bernie Sanders' presidency is one major thing. Uh, regardless of the outcome of that election, I think continuing to build out uh, our movement-based approach in which we are getting the word out to as many people as possible, involving them directly in pressure campaigns. Um, we, I think, have learned over the past two years that it's really important to have medium-term goals uh, on the way to, we, we can't just canvas for canvases, canvassing's own sake, um, though, you know, if, if human beings were a little bit different, if we could really uh, sustain a long-term view all the time, it might be different and easier to motivate ourselves to just keep on that long road. But uh, providing kind of medium-term goals, I think getting uh, H.R. 1384 to the floor of the House um, next year is the major one. And then um, continuing to campaign for the only uh, presidential candidate who um, who's going to fight tooth and nail to get this passed is going to be our, our major push. And I just really briefly want to talk a little bit about what's been happening in New York State um, in the past legislative session and what you all are looking forward to and when the legislative session starts back up this next year. Sure. So um, there was a very exciting um, joint, uh, joint hearing between the New York State Assembly and the New York State Senate on October 10th. A lot of health care testimonies were shared. I uh, heard and there's a video recording of not a dry eye in the room um, from a lot of the um, the testimonies that were given of just how how the private health insurance industry and the current healthcare system have wrecked the lives of so many New Yorkers. Um, I think it really got a good hearing and the fact that it's being um, listened to uh, by both in, in these joint hearings um, that this conversation is is continuing apace is really important. Um, ben. Yeah. Um, so um, with the defeat of the IDC senators, um, God, was that last year? <laughs> I can't remember years anymore. Um, yeah, um, that really changed the math in the state Senate in terms of um, support for the New York Health Act. Um, and so, you know, we're now at the point where, um, you know, it, it's sort of like we were talking about, it, you know, with, with the House Democrats. Um, closer than ever to getting seriously considered and, and even passed, um, but the resistance to it is also quite strong as a result of that. Um, you know, um, we have uh, several candidates who New York City DSA has endorsed who are running for state assembly and state senate. Um, there are four in total, and they are strong supporters of the New York Health Act. This is one of the reasons why it's so important to have strong you know, socialist uh, legislators on the state level and not just, you know, not just Bernie Sanders running, you know, for president as well. Um, and and so we're, you know, we're, we're looking at that, um, you know, as as also another way to raise the profile of this legislation. Um, two, two events that I just want to mention um, on this question. Um, one is that the campaign for New York Health um, is holding a rally and a public hearing at 9 a.m. on Wednesday, October 23rd. For anyone who can make it, it's in the Bronx. It's at the Bronx Library Center, which is at 310 East Kingsbridge Road, which is um, right near the intersection with Briggs Avenue. Um, the Campaign for New York Health is especially looking for people who can share their healthcare stories, um, and especially from testimony from people in public sector unions. Um, and if anyone um, is interested, they can contact Katie, K-A-T-I-E, at nyhcampaign.org. The other thing is that 
um, the New York Progressive Action Network, NIPAN, is hosting two uh, forums on single payer in Manhattan. Um, they're both in November. So the first one is November 4th at 6 p.m. And that's at the West End Collegiate Church at 77th Street and West End Avenue. And then the other one is uh, November 12th at 6 p.m. And that's at the YMHA on Nagel Avenue. That's 54 Nagel Avenue in Uptown. Um, and NIPAN is seeking testimony, um, especially from seniors um, and from, um, what did I write here? People with, con um, you know what? I don't know what the other thing that I wrote says, but um, if you're a senior or honestly, if you're anybody who wants to testify about healthcare uh, and talk about the New York Health Act, you should definitely get in touch. And that's info at nypan.org, N-Y-P-A-N.org. And if you're interested in getting involved in the work that we're doing around Hakeem Jeffries, um, really in any of the work that we're doing in New York City, DSA, um, we're going to be meeting next Tuesday. We'll, we'll be meeting tonight as well, um, but also next Tuesday, October 22nd at 7 p.m. in Crown Heights. If you'd like more information, you can email us at healthcare.myc.dsa at gmail.com. We can get you set up. Uh, if you don't live in central Brooklyn, um, we also have a campaign that's getting off uh, getting onto its feet uh, to pressure Max Rose, who's the representative for Staten Island and parts of um, South Brooklyn as well. Um, and if you don't live in either of those places, still come out. Uh, we'll get you connected, whether it's through communications or data collection and organization. Um, we really could use all hands on deck for this. Yeah, and it's just the thing that we've learned, you know, and that every organizer learns whether the issue they're working on is immigration or in the environment or healthcare, you know, if you are part of, you know, a tenants association, or even if you're not, if you just know your neighbors, you know, if you're in a union, if you work in a workplace, you know, um, talk to the people who you meet right. in your daily life. And, and that's really just the basic building block of organizing this mass movement. And, you know, we're going to win. Well, thank you so much for being on today. Um, thank you. Shout out to Reggie for keeping the revolution going. This has been RPM Underground. Uh, make sure after you listen to this episode, share it since we were not live on air today. So it's really up to all the people listening to this to to get the word out, you know, share it with your neighbors and then and then talk about healthcare. care. Um, this has been Revolution Per Minute and we will catch you next week, New York.